0: Let us pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would uh, come by the power of your Holy Spirit and open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to what you are doing uh, in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, of course, um, what I need up here to get it up on the screen is not here. Uh, So you're just going to have to forego. uh, Home videos of me as a child. I'm uh, just kidding. They're not. They're not there. But uh, this morning we are going. Thank you so much, wife of mine, living out your marriage vows. We're going to talk this morning uh, about what the church is for. I hope that we have time to get into some sort of nitty gritty things. Um, it may feel you make you feel dissatisfied by the end of it, but. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about what is, the, what is the church for? And we've kind of been getting at the answer to that question by talking about things like, uh, well, the church is uh, primarily, primarily for people who cry uncle, right? There are lots of scenes in, in the Gospels uh, that show uh, everybody from, um, you know, the, the wealthy man who goes and gives his offering Uh, and uh, gives it in such a way that it's noisy, using heavy coins in order to... to, You can hear the offering being made uh, to much fanfare. And then the widow who goes and gives a mite, which is one of the smallest units of currency in that time. And, uh, And Jesus says, you know, he's given out of his abundance, but she has given out of her poverty. She's given everything, everything that she has. So she leaves that place with nothing but God, whereas the other guy that gave a lot of money he still leaves uh, with some sense of independence and uh, self-sufficiency. We talked about last week the issue of uh, there in the temple, uh, the man uh, praying the tax collector off to the side where no one can really see him in the shadows, and there's the guy that steps up and says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that guy, right? And the guy over in the shadows is saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus will ask, well... Who's in, right? Who's the, one that, who's the one that is in the right place, not because of, of them? We're not talking about a, a false humility where you say, well, you know, we're all, we're all sinners. Um, we're talking about actually coming to a place where, um, you know, we, we pray it in our, communion, in our uh, confession of sin. We say that our sins, the burden of them is intolerable. And I'll be the first to admit, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're not intolerable, uh, but often they are. You can feel the weight of them, and not just in your own life, but you can see how they begin to work themselves out uh, around you. Um, you know, I, um, I can't imagine myself apart from my wife, Lauren, like who I am as, as an individual, um, and I can't imagine what I would be like if it weren't uh, for, for children, um, I feel like they're trying to kill me, uh, but uh, literally staying up all night and then like here's a germ I got at school, Ooh. Uh, and it's amazing, you know, the kid, they have a little sniffle and then you get it and you're like, just kill me now, you know, I feel like I'm going to, anyway, so, um, but I can't imagine myself apart from that because when, you know, when you're single, uh, and this is not one of the hard things about marriage, but one of the good things about marriage is when you're single, uh, your decisions only impact yourself, You know, so like if you wanted to go get falafel at 2 in the morning, you can go get falafel at 2 in the morning. It doesn't matter. You get married, you ain't getting falafel at 2 in the morning ever again. And and so it really causes you to think about um, who you are. And those things that you knew probably were character flaws uh, in close-knit relationships, they're exacerbated, right? They, they automatically, there's a refining process, right? So the whole idea of refining a, a, a precious metal is that you heat it and the impurities come to the top and they're skimmed off. And so there's a, a sense of refining that goes on uh, even when you're part of a family like the church, right? There ought to be <clears throat> some transparency and vulnerability in the relation, and that's, those are two things that really half... Uh, to mark relationships if you want to have any sort of intimacy. And, of course, I'm not talking about sexual intimacy. I'm just talking about intimacy in general. If you're going to connect with somebody, there you have it. So Lauren and I were talking about, well, who are the friends that we've had for such a long time that we may not really necessarily keep in touch with, and yet it's like superglue. Even if you wanted to get rid of them, you can't. And almost without exception, those are people who we've gone through really hard times with Right, whether a loss of a loved one or uh, difficulty in marriage or difficulty in raising children, uh, just difficulty in life. And so being able to lean on one another, <clears throat> which means not just you being willing to bear the burden of your brother and sister, but you actually being willing to hand your burden over to them, which is a whole lot harder, a whole lot harder. I mean, uh, just visit any man in the hospital. I mean, it's impossible to take care of them, and it's impossible to take care of me. But uh, that is funny, (laughs) Catherine. Um, But the ability, uh, the necessity of being willing to hand over your own burdens to your brothers and sisters. And so rather than saying, what is the church for, it might actually be a better question to ask, who is the church for? The church is for everybody. Because even when you got the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes in Jesus' day, uh, those are the people that we would say, those are the people who are really close to God. And we do it today. Now, I'm not lumping these people in with the same, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but but we still have a tendency today to say, well, who's close to God? The Pope? Mother Teresa types? Y'all know me well enough, so I wouldn't make the list. Um, you know, whatever, uh, it, it, those types of people are the ones that you say are, are close to God, but what we find out is that if you're in a relationship with the Lord Jesus, he's as close to you as he is anybody else, right? There's not a pecking order. There's not a sort of, you know... Well, the Pope is praying, so maybe I should listen to him. Andrew's just going to have to wait a minute. Uh, there's, there's none of that. Lauren made a very funny joke when, she, when uh, she said, see, I told you, the Pope, look at him. I'm like, well, what about him? She said, you can wear white after Labor Day. <laughs> very funny. There was also a great photograph that went out of Mem that said, um, it has the Pope addressing Congress. And it says, that, underneath it it says, the Pope visits the sick. I thought, that's very funny. (laughs) Uh, And so, but I mean, you've been reading about the Pope, right? And uh, John Boehner's been crying nonstop. Uh, I can't really make fun of him because I'm in the same boat. Uh, Not about the Pope, but about other things, children and and dogs and horses. And so, um, uh, but one of the things that really struck John Boehner was when uh, he was talking to the Pope, and the Pope said, pray for me. And John Boehner has a mentality, and he admits this: of like, what do I need to? You're the Pope. Why would I have to possibly pray for you? And the Pope's like, really? (laughs) You know, I mean, I I really need you to pray for me uh, and my relationship with the Lord and the great responsibility that I'm bearing. And so, one of the things I really do like about the current Pope is he's very self-aware, right? He's very—he escapes from the Vatican. Do you know this? He escapes from the Vatican and uh, roams the streets of Rome, and uh, often to find pizza. Um, he's actually gained a significant amount of weight uh, since he's been Pope uh, because of all the pizza he's eating. Uh, and he admits that. And I really, uh, I appreciate that. You know, my, my favorite prayer is, you know, Lord, if you can't make me thin and fit, just make all my friends fatter. Uh, and so... <laughs> and so when we think about church, Caroline Springfield said it this morning, and if you'll hear it at 11, is, you know, when we think about church, we tend to think of institutions or... Uh, And we use words like they're a churchman or they're a churchwoman or they're very active and involved in the church. And there's a hard thing about that word. So we call what we do here church, right? I'm going to church. Um, In some parts of the world, like in Australia, if you go to Sydney Anglican Diocese, uh, they will actually call what they do on Sunday mornings a meeting. They have a meeting. Now, they're not Quakers who sit around and say nothing, uh, but what they're trying to do is to convey the idea, uh, which is really what the church is mostly talked about in the New Testament, is that we are the church. Right? You and me, we are the church. Uh, us, even people sitting in the pews in the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, St. Paul's Catholic Cathedral, um, even, even St. Mary's on the Highlands, uh, they are... Um, 're we are we're in it together right we're in it together, regardless of where we go on a Sunday morning uh, we are the church, and so really the church is for everybody right it's it's for everybody it's the the family uh, the family of God and um, people normally will come to church uh, because they have uh, some sort of pressing need. And I told you about the guy who came into my office who recently joined a law firm in town. And he said, look, I'm not really into this Jesus thing, but I think that joining the Advent would be advantageous to my career. And I said, well, that may be. Um, Here's a pledge card. But, um, I mean, that may be. And I said, but... uh, you're going to find yourself very uncomfortable here because you can't just join a family and then try to withdraw. There's going to kind of be a tractor beam. And there's a tendency, especially amongst younger generations, that they really want anonymity. Now, look, I'm not the guy, you know, if you've ever been to visit another church on a Sunday morning and they make you stand up if you're a visitor and, and say who you are. I always use a fake name. And um, I always say I'm Joe Warren and I'm from the ad. Yeah. So... And then uh, you get out of there, and then an hour and a half later, there's a knock at the door, and they give you a coffee mug and a fresh. The, the bread's good, but you know you kind of. Well, do you want to come in? I don't want you to come in, but uh, uh, there is a sense in which you kind of want to get away from that. And there are times when you do just want to be left alone uh, to worship the Lord. But if anonymity is something that you really want and you really desire, don't get involved in a family, right? Don't don't do that. And so. There is this intimate relationship that is created uh, in uh, the life of the church. And yet, within the life of the church, there's an incredible amount of diversity. And uh, Paul uh, is one of those who is intent upon talking about this diversity. And uh, and he even goes so far sometimes as to talk about distinctives uh, within the life of the church. Uh, And what he says is, uh, in one place in Galatians, he says, there's neither Greek uh, nor Jew. There's neither male nor female, uh, slave nor free, no more. Uh, we are all one in Christ Jesus. So what is he saying? What he's saying? Well, one, in some sense, he's actually assaulting uh, what it means uh, in our day and age to be human. He's actually going after those things that we would assume are our identities. Uh, when he gives off the litany of, uh, of what uh, he brings to the table in his own life. He says, you know, uh, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, as to the law, uh, a Pharisee, uh, on and on. I mean, he's got the best resume. And then at the end of that, he says, and all that is rubbish. He actually uses a profane word. He uses a four-letter word uh, that you would use for poop. poop. Yeah, that's not a good word either, David. But uh, yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, he says... All that is that. That's what it is. Although the world looks at it and says, those are wonderful arrows in your quiver. He says, all of that is nothing compared to what I am in Jesus Christ and who I am. If you want to understand who I am, you need to know who Jesus is because he's my everything. He's my all-consuming passion. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, I'm going to read this, 1, 26... Through 32, Paul writes this, for consider your calling brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, it sounds like he's hanging out with my grandfather, Uh, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so all of a sudden, everything that we thought that we brought to the table is nothing. Uh, We don't bring anything uh, to uh, the table. Now, this doesn't mean that there are no distinctions. In fact, those distinctions are pointed out. So if you look at the book of Acts, when Luke talks about the church in Antioch, he talks about mainly the racial diversity that is within uh, that congregation, that it's a a diverse place where all types uh, are, are welcome and they have a heart for mission. And so... Who we are as human beings uh, in this day and age uh, is is a little bit difficult um, to talk about, and we all we have all these labels that have that have come up. I was really surprised to know that uh, there was no such person in the world that could identify as a Latino until 1970. And do you know what happened in 1970? That word magically appeared in the United States Census form, and all of a sudden we had Latinos, right? Just one more category, and that, that's true of you know. I mean, there actually is no such thing as race, in a sense. Do you know what I'm saying? You understand what I'm saying? That, that those are labels that we have applied. Now some may be descriptors, but those types of labels that exist in our culture and in our society—is that really who we are, right? So, um, well, it's just, uh, I, I, I happen to actually fit the description of WASP, right? I'm a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant father, husband, minister. Now, that's a label right there. <laughs> minister. That I, and so with all that, people start to get an idea of, of who uh, you are. But what if they were just to scratch the surface and get get beneath that. I mean, one of the craziest moments I ever had in my life was in college, and we had this guy in our fraternity who was very anti-Semitic. I mean, really uh, awful, and would say terrible things, and, and um, if you were Jewish, you would always kind of uh, play it against you, and uh, just a really mean, nasty guy. And then his parents came uh, for... Parents' weekend, and I remember talking to them, and um, and the mother was talking to me, and she said, "You know, we really, we really would love Will to come home a little bit more. He just likes Charlottesville a little too much." And I said, "Well, I can understand that. I don't go home either." She said, "No, but in our family, it's really important for him to come home uh, for things like Yom Kippur and Rush." And I thought, "What? You know, it turns out he's Jewish." Right, his mother was, and he was trying to distance himself. And so here we are, thinking that this is who this guy is. And all of a sudden, within seconds, I thought, I have no idea who this guy is. Right, I really don't know who he is and what he's dealing with in life. And people will try to project identities on you. Um, you know, things mean very different. One of the funniest conversations Lauren and I have ever had uh, was involving first cars, and um, and she was sort of listening in while I was telling a story about a first car. And um, what I I, I was really into was a a Ford Mustang convertible, and I was describing it and talking about how awesome it was and how great it was, and Lauren just kind of, and how cool I was, and Lauren just kind of, she's like, I don't know about all that. Like, what do you mean you don't know all about that? She goes, well, uh, just a Ford Mustang convertible, the kind you're talking about, it kind of screams one word. Redneck, and, uh, and I, all of a sudden I went from cool to being, oh gosh, what am I thinking? Uh, and uh, my whole world was turned upside down. Uh, but, uh, but what she was saying, and, and understandably so, because it, it was a little whiskey tango, but, um, <laughs> but what she was saying was that, isn't that funny how you perceive that to be something that's cool, that's the image you're trying to project, but when I see that, I'm kind of projecting on you, what a doofus, you know, who does he think he is peeling wheels out of the high school parking lot? So those labels really are not. And even, even, what does it mean to be a white male in America today? What does it mean to be a black female in America today? What does it mean to be a Latino uh, in in the world today? And I would even go so far, and we'll talk about this later, uh, what does it mean, you know, all the new labels that have come out regarding human sexuality? I mean, is that really the sum of who we are? No. No. And a lot of that has to do with the fact, not just because the Bible says it, but that's actually how God relates to us. He doesn't relate to us saying, I'm relating to you, Andrew, as a white male father of three girls married to Lauren. But that's not, how does he relate to me? He relates to me, right, directly, intimately, who I am. He looks upon the human heart. Now, the thing about the human heart is that, you know, that might say, well, that's good because I don't want God to look on my outward appearances, Uh, but God is not that impressed with our hearts either, (laughs) right? Because that's the area where we wish that we could cover up. You know, we can kind of manage our own profiles in the world around us, and yet God looks upon the heart and that, yes, there are distinctions, uh, but when it comes to how God relates to us and how we relate to one another there is no distinction, right? It transcends race, class, ethnicity, all of that. And you've experienced this if you have traveled overseas and run into Christians, right? Absolutely, I was talking last week about how uh, China now has more people that claim Christianity as their faith than they do people in China willing to claim the Communist Party as their own. So there are now more Christians than communists uh, in China. And uh, when you go over to a place like that, or if you go to Canada, uh, then you are going to interact with people. And if they're Christians and you're a Christian, that's going to be totally different. It's going to be totally, totally different uh, because of what Jesus has has done. And the thing that you share, that faith in Jesus, uh, means everything. Now, I'm casting a pretty wide net here. Uh, when it comes to the church, uh, in our tradition, we've always believed that the church is a total mixed bag, right? In the sense that it is this mix, kind of like ourselves, of redeemed, non-redeemed, and whatever else. Uh, there really isn't any other category, but but there you go. It's, it's that sort of thing. Uh, but there's always been a tendency in the church that really came to a fore at the time of the Reformation to... Um, to really clarify what the church was. And so one of the things I was going to show you that I can't uh, because I don't have my little doohickey, uh, but uh, the first and most representative body of Anabaptists and the Anabaptists are the forerunners to both the Baptist and the Amish and the Mennonites and people like that. But in the Schleitheim Confession, this is what they wrote. Article four, we are agreed as follows on separation "...a separation shall be made from evil and from the wickedness which the devil planted in the world, in this manner simply that we shall not have fellowship with them, the wicked, and not run with them in the multitude of their abominations. This is the way it is. Since all who do not walk in the obedience of faith, and have not united themselves with God so that they wish to do His will, are a great abomination before God, it is not possible for anything to grow or issue from them except abominable things." For truly all creatures are in but two classes, good and bad, believing and unbelieving, darkness and light, the world and those who have come out of the world, God's temple and idols, Christ and Belial, that's the devil, and none can have part with the other. Well, I hope you all are good liars uh, because what this does is it sets up, and and I'm not saying that Baptists and the Amish are a little bit more like this, but what it's saying, and this, this is where the concept of shunning comes from, from this document, where if somebody is a notorious sin in your congregation, what do you do? You kick them out. You absolutely kick them out. And to the extent of not, you, you just you get rid of them. You, 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 anything that would, that would taint the body, you get rid of them. Now, according to this, um, the church, there's a purity to the church that has to be maintained. Right? It has to be maintained. And so you need to constantly be on the lookout for things that would upset the purity of the church. And how do you do that? Well, you have to look at somebody's outward life, don't you? Right? You, can't, you can't peer into the person's heart. And so basically the church is made up of the people who are able to behave well. If you, have, if you struggle with good behavior, you're out. Right, You're at right, because you're eventually going to slip and you're going to fall. Now, our tradition has said, well, just because somebody slips and falls doesn't mean they're not a Christian. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian. That's why Luther said it famously, uh, go and sin boldly. Right Now, everyone remembers that part, but what they don't remember is the second part where Luther says, for the whole cross is outside of you. And what Luther was saying was that you are going to royally blow it, but there's nothing that you can do to merit God's forgiveness, but there's also nothing that you can do to merit His unforgiving you, right? That, you know, God doesn't look at us and say, oh, well, you royally blew it, and so I'm just going to go ahead and take it back. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't do that. And so in the communities that, and their churches today, uh, and, and even in mainline protestantism who feel that they need to be the spiritual arm of the sheriff's department and get rid of anything or anybody that isn't stepping in line uh with what's what's going on and sometimes it's not even doctrinal sometimes it's but it's people that just don't fit in so when i was at saint helena's they really go over the top for easter and they do all, they fill all the windows in that colonial church with huge flower arrangements and um Often there are these cruises that come up the intercoastal waterway and <clears throat> some tourists, it was the Saturday before Easter, they were decorating the church. Uh, some tourists came in and just saw how beautiful the church was and they were asking one of the ladies uh, that, were, that was arranging the flowers uh, about the church and the husband and the wife looked at one another and said, well, gosh, that, that sounds really wonderful. We'd love to come for Easter services tomorrow. But unfortunately, all the clothes we have are the kind of what we have on, shorts and and golf shirts. Uh, What do you think?" And the lady said, well, it is Easter, (laughs) and it is St. Helena's. I don't know. And uh, well, they went away sad. (laughs) Right? They went away. And the worst part of it was, was, you know what, that lady that was arranging the flowers was not a member of the church. But that was her perception of what the church was like. That good-looking people who wore really nice clothes That's who belongs in this church. And if you can't fit into that mold, then it's probably best to find someplace else. So we all have this idea of what the church ought to look like. But what we see in the book of Acts and what we see around us in the world today is it is a motley crew. Now, I think at one time, the Episcopal church probably could have claimed some sort of culturally elite status. Like if we were... If we had like church miles, we would be platinum. Uh, We'd be up there. We'd be really. We'd automatically get bumped up and and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Well, we're like the guy. You know, there's not. I used to fly a lot for work, and let me tell you, there is nothing worse than being at the top of the heap with airline miles and getting bumped up all the time, to going back to coach. Right? Uh, It is. It is really an awful thing, and. and you know what I'm saying, why? Because, well, that's, that's where we are in the Episcopal Church. And so we tend to spend a lot of time talking about when we were riding first class, uh, when we were platinum, uh, when we were part of the cultural elite. And I still do think that a disproportionate number of Episcopalians uh, are in leadership positions uh, in, in our nation. Uh, but we're a shrinking group. Uh, we're a shrinking group, and the heritage that we need to hold on to uh, are our confessional documents like the articles of religion and the prayer book and the Bible, uh, not a projected idea of something that we were, which in fact we may never have been. And so for us, the church, like in the the New Testament, is this ragtag, motley crew, uh, sometimes very well educated like Paul, sometimes very uneducated like Peter. Uh, people who have means. You'll see often in the book of Acts, people who are giving a lot of money uh, to help support uh, the church. And Paul even will say, or Luke will even say, this is what they did for a living to provide for the church. But even in the early church, I don't want to make it sound like all sunshine and lollipops, they had their problems. Um, Oftentimes uh, there, especially in the church in Corinth, they uh, fell into a pretty bad place. And so what was happening in the Church of Corinth mainly was an issue of sexual immorality. Um, I'll just tell you what it was because you can read it for yourself. Uh, One was a man was uh, carrying on with his stepmother, and the other uh, issue was just other issues dealing with fornication. There were also issues of uh, believers uh, bringing lawsuits against one another. Uh, There was an issue of when they would gather together as a body. Um, The wealthy people would sit at the table and eat while the poor people sat back and watched. And if there was any left over, then they would eat. Uh, So there was a great degree of classism going on in the life of the church. Basically it's a total mess, right? It's a total mess. And uh, Paul, you know, I could understand if he had written the church in Corinth and said, you're now closed, (laughs) right? We're shutting it down. Now, he had some very specific pointers on how to deal with uh, these individuals, and he even went so far as to say with this guy who was with his stepmother, you need to, you need to have a little sit-down talk with him and go so far as to excommunicate him. Now, what do I mean by that? There are times in the church where somebody's sin is so grievous that it affects the community as a whole. Now, the difference here is what is the disposition of the person who has fallen? And sometimes it's not actually a grievous sin. Sometimes it's just, I'll t- maybe it's just gossip. Like you've got to gossip in the life of the church, and uh, for the sake of the body, you say to them, you, you, need, to, you need to take a time out. You need to take a, an absolute time out. Now, um, I've dealt with some situations in my own ministry where um, some really bad things Have happened, and um, and yet what I've found is that in most cases, the person who um, who is caught in this sin um, is entirely overwhelmed by it, and the burden of it is intolerable. When you have somebody like that, what's the worst thing you could do? Cut them loose, and yet people do. People do. I mean, I've told you the story about Fitz Allison at Grace Church, where there was a woman in the choir who was having an affair with. the music director or no one of the wardens i think is what it was and <clears throat> and it was kind of public and the warden was like you know what's the big deal you know we're both grown adults it's consensual and um, well it really got to this woman and she went to see the rector of grace church fitz allison and she really just said I- i'm a broken woman I-, I need to know how to get and uh, I- just what do i do what do i do i need forgiveness i need mercy and that sunday they were having communion at their main service And she said, I don't even feel like I'm worthy enough to present yourself for communion. And Fitz, with his right pastoral instinct, said, well, if you're not, then I'm not. So you should come forward in the mercy of God and knowing what Jesus Christ has done for you and and receive. And so that Sunday she did. Well, everybody just kind of watched this notorious sinner walk down the aisle and receive communion. And a vestry member approached Fitz immediately after the service and said, Fitz, what in the world? Now, of course, they didn't know the background story, so he shared it. He said, this woman, she's coming to me. She's repentant. She wants to be restored in the life of the church. And, and so I ministered to her, and, and uh, the guy just was not getting it. And finally, Fitz said, well, goodness, I mean, even Jesus restored the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And the guy said, and I don't think much of him for that either. <laughs> well... So there are all kinds of crazy things going in Corinth and some of the things you're going to have to deal with. You're just going to have to deal with. Uh, And just think about it in relation to your own family. If somebody in your family, let's say an immediate family member, whether it's a sibling, a parent, a child, if they start to act up, what does it do? It infects the whole family. And you can't just ignore it and think, oh well that's between them and God. Right? It actually, if it's having an impact on you, you've got to deal with it, you've got to address it. And, and you're doing it not to bust them. Uh, you're doing it, I hope, because you actually care about the person. You actually care about the person. But you also need to be willing to let go of somebody. So like in the parable of the prodigal son, when the son comes up and says a really awful thing to his dad, he says, Dad, I want what's coming to me now that I would normally get when you die. So what's the son basically saying? I kind of wish you were dead but we'll just go ahead and pole vault that and I just want the money." And the dad would have had every right to say, boy, I am going to wear you out. What are you talking... What, what do you mean you want... But what does the dad do? Right, he, he liquidates property in order to give this kid his money and off he goes. And off he goes. Now, I. Jesus doesn't say this, but one of the things, you know, so if somebody is struggling with something or dealing with something and may not even be on the same page, even if someone comes into my office and says something absolutely off the wall, screwy theologically, that's not of you in here. But let's just say that, that that happens. If God is working in their life, and I can see that, and they give testimony to that, I'm trust, I have a high degree of trust in the Holy Spirit to bring them to a place where they understand the truth, Right? So I don't feel like I need to argue with them about every single point, nor do I insist that they agree with me on every single point if I know that God has a hold of them. Right? So this dad letting the son go knows that, that the love for the father, which is implanted in this child, he knows that his son loves him. Of course, the father is the God character in it. The son is the wayward sinner. Uh, that, that he will eventually return. And the father looks every day on the horizon for his return. And when he does, he kills the fatted calf. He doesn't begin to list conditions as to how the son can get back into the family. In fact, that's what the son tries to do. He says, look, I'll be better. I'll do this. I'll repay you. I'll, I'll live like a hired hand. And the father wants nothing to do with that. He says, the criteria for you getting back into the family is you coming back into the family. right? You coming back. That's it. That's it. Turning and coming back uh, to us. Now, I didn't even get to the bulk of what we were going to talk about uh, because the service went long today. But let me just say this. The next thing I'm going to talk about is the church in Galatia. In spite of the gross sexual immorality and classism and everything else in the Corinthian church, Paul never once unchurched them. He didn't think you're in jeopardy of not being a church. But the Galatians were another story because he said, you are in jeopardy of losing the gospel. I don't care if an angel comes down and preaches a diff- If an angel comes down and preaches a gospel that is different from the gospel that has been given to us by Jesus Christ, forget it. All, all is for naught, and, and you're anathema, right? Nothing to do with you. Absolutely nothing to do with you. So next week... Uh, We're going to be talking, actually, no, next week is parish retreat. Yeah, so Mark Gentilette will be in here. So next week, we're going to talk about uh, the difference between the church in Corinth and the church in Galatia, and how do we make sense, well, how do we deal with a rapidly changing culture, especially as it concerns the issue of sexuality, and hold on to the gospel, uh, and have a witness that uh, is rooted and centered in Jesus Christ. Very quickly, anybody have a question or a comment? Corinth or Galatia? Corinth. Thank you. Just generally, just generally speaking. All right, God bless y'all. Have a good week.